Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. My name is Ollie Henderson and I'm back after a much longer than expected break over the summer. A lot has happened in that time. Future Work Life, my newsletter is now business and I'm working with organisations to help them design the future of work. And as of last week, I am writing a book. I've got a publishing deal, which means the book will be released at the end of 2022. The book's called Work Life Flywheel, Find Flow and Propel Your Career to the Next Level. And of course, it will be full of the types of insights that you hear on this podcast. Now, today's guest is Robbie Stamp. He's the CEO of BIOS International, which is an organizational consultancy specializing in governance and decision-making. Robbie has had a very interesting career. He was the executive producer on The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, having set up a business with Douglas Adams. Robbie is a fascinating guy. He's a lovely man, and I've really enjoyed getting to know him over these past few months, which is why I invited him onto the show. You'll hear us talk about AI, the importance of curiosity, and of course, I do ask him towards the end about his relationship with Douglas Adams and what he's learned from him. So thank you very much for joining me again on this new series. If you're not already subscribed, please make sure you do so. You can check out the newsletter on Substack and my website at futureworklife.com. So without further ado... Here's my conversation with Rocky Stamp. So, Robbie, thanks very much for joining me today. We've been talking a lot over the past few months about work and, and life in general. And one point that you've made to me a few times, which really resonated, is this idea that we need to be compassionate when we think about our lives and that our lives are inherently messy. I wonder if we, we could start by you explaining what you mean by that and, and where that thinking comes from. Lolly, first of all, thank you very much for having me on this morning. Um, yeah, it's a great opening question. I suppose that what I mean by compassion for messiness is that I suppose as I get older, I recognize that a lot of our lives just are messy. They're contradictory, they're complex, and that I know this sounds paradoxical, but I worry sometimes about wellness agendas, happiness agendas. Now, let me hasten to say, it is much better to have a wellness agenda than a make you feel crap agenda, unequivocally. <laughs> There's no doubt about it at all. But I think what I mean by compassion for messiness is that recognizing that those states of well-being, those states of flow are probably more fleeting in our lives than we'd like to think, or that sometimes the big happiness indices and things would, would have us believe. And the, the risk in them is that we have a sense of missing out, that if there is this land called well-being, there's this land called happiness, and I don't feel I'm there all the time or maybe as often as I'd like to be, that's okay. That's just because that's who we are. That is who we are in our wonderfulness and our messiness and our contradictions. So I think it's that compassion for messiness and not adding another burden into our lives of feeling that yet again there is some way in which we're somehow not living up to scratch yeah do you think that's got worse i mean obviously people talk about social media exacerbating various issues but do you think that opportunity to compare one's life against that of others via social media has has made this issue greater more pronounced 
I suspect that you know we are in the midst of what has been this great unregulated social media experiment uh, of the, you know what it, how, however far back you wish to push it. I mean, I'm aware as an historian or quasi historian. I only did undergraduate history, but I've loved history all my life. That there have been unbelievably turbulent times in terms of media. I mean, you go back, I'll just pluck one out of the air. You look at the the lead up to the French Revolution and the pamphleteering and the satire and the brutal satire around Marie Antoinette and the scurrilous things that were being said about her and so on. So in some senses, and you could, I'm sure, find many, many examples of that, um, in some senses, the the sort of what can feel a little sort of fetid and a little febrile, I, I think is just kind of part of inter- humans interacting with each other through whatever communications media, media they've had available to them. But yes, I do think clearly, and it's not a particularly brilliant observation, that you know, social media has absolutely turbocharged that. And, you know, again, somebody of my age, I and mean, I grew up without social media, but I've you know, been parent to children who did grow up in a social media age. And I watched and saw uh, some things which I thought were very difficult to cope with and, and, and you know, understandably very difficult. And it was all unregulated. And it was, let's just take one example, bullying. Um, you know, if you were having a hard time at school, at least you could come home, shut the door, and probably even the worst school bully wouldn't plan to try and call on the home phone and get past your mm. mum or your dad <laughs> to give you a hard time. And if they did, they wouldn't. It wouldn't happen more than once. And yet now your bedroom isn't a sanctuary. Your bedroom is safe. You know, under the bedclothes isn't safe. There's nowhere that safe is in your head the whole time. And uh, yeah, it's very, it's very dangerous, and clearly it's dangerous. And that sense of um, therefore all these other lives being lived this overwhelm and this sense of therefore who am i where where do i be where do i belong how where do i fit all of those things which are where we all go through all of our lives but obviously in adolescence and things are particularly strong questions uh and you've got all of these you know broken fractal imagery of what life could and should be like and you're feeling but that isn't my lived experience so yes i think those gulfs are large and I think they're pretty dangerous. Yeah. Let's discuss perhaps another unachievable aspiration. Maybe that's just my view, but I'll, I'll find out from you. So work-life balance, I've got a problem with that phrase, but I'd like to get your your take on it. Do the semantics matter? Work-life balance tends to be the phrase everyone uses when they're talking about the relationship between work and life. And what I'm interested in, is there a better way to discuss the interrelationship between the two? Yeah, I mean, I think that there probably is. I mean, I, I, as you know, we've been talking a lot. I mean, I do think semantics matter a lot. <laughs> it's something that interests me a great deal. I mean, I, again, I think probably that the the issue I'd have with a phrase like work life balance uh, goes back to what we said at the at the big right at the beginning of the conversation just now, which is that we may for a while feel that we've got our work and our life in balance, but it's quite rare, and that there are so many different competing journeys that we're on in our lives that we 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 may be a stage where yes we do feel that you know we've got our work and our life in balance i think it's also maybe a male thing that maybe more men traditionally have felt oh i've got my life in balance because they've got lots of other people covering lots of other aspects of their lives uh and so yeah my 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 life is in balance but i think that that 
you know, you, we, we all know the real, our lived reality is there'll be a time where we've got, you know, a sick child or we've got parents. I'm very aware who are, who are aging. I mean, I'm very aware at my age that, you know, I seem to have reached a stage where a lot of people are coping with parents in the early stages of dementia or illness. Um, and that takes a huge amount of time. So if you're meant to be experiencing this nirvana of work-life balance, there's yet another thing maybe that you feel you're missing out on. Of course, it's a good idea not to be planning your life, to be working 14-hour days and, uh, you know, sending the odd, you know, text message to your family and so on. That's probably not a good idea. I'm not advocating that for a single second. But I think, again, the danger with work-life balance is I think it's a lot more elusive than this phrase would suggest. And you can feel a lot worse when you're not experiencing it, as opposed to sort of, to use a phrase, leaning in to the messiness, the complexities, the understanding that there will be different things which are making different kinds of demands on your life at different stages of your life. And that's just the way things are. And therefore, don't add to the stress of feeling, my life is suddenly out of balance. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think my issue with it is just it it infers trading one off against the other. And I think the reality for most people is that work and life have to align. Because if you have a bad day at work, it's difficult to leave that entirely and then step into the home environment and be right as rain and vice versa. I think, you know, your family life affects your work and i think trying to get those two in harmony rather than in balance is probably a better metaphor i think i think harmony is a really good metaphor and certainly the way in which for example you know the chinese would think about harmony they see it as it's a very dynamic state it's not kind of this you know you're suddenly in this massive still point they see it's it's a constant balance of competing forces that's just that's what that that's again that's just what is and that would maybe go back again to your first great question about compassion in a res- in a relationship or a set of relationships to have compassion from where a partner or a parent or a child is in 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 their life we all have that solipsistic tendency to see the world through our lens i'm tired i've had a bad day i've 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 i had a meeting which went really poorly you know somebody got cross with me and now i'm home and i'm finding that difficult but you know, maybe your partner or your child had a difficult time. We're all, all the time dealing with that balance of that compassion for other people's days, other people's, the things that are competing for their attention too. Mm. And that's a critical element of, again, compassion for self, but compassion for others as well. You mentioned your interest in history there through our conversations. You you reference many different philosophical ideas historical ideas but you're also very much in touch with new developments around ai machine learning and exponential technology if we used azim azar's phrase i'm just interested from a learning point of view you're clearly interested in self-development and and continual learning how do you see that fitting into your life and how does that feed into that sense of purpose and progression that I think we all need to continually experience whatever stage of our life and our career we're at. Well, I know, I know this maybe will sound a little twee, but I think if I was wishing sort of um, gifts on a child, uh, sort of fairy godmother-like at the beginning of her life, I think I, I would wish 
kindness and I would wish curiosity and I'd wish, I'd wish lifelong curiosity because again, the older I get, I, I, there was a stage where I fretted about all the things I'm never going to know. Uh, and now I just take pleasure in the very few things I do. <laughs> I kind of think about it as a sort of like a, a sea with an archipelago of islands. And there are some islands that are slightly bigger than the others. And there are some islands I've built some bridges between. Um, but that's as much as it's ever going to be. And that's fine. And therefore, there's always joy to be found in a book, a poem, an experience, meeting somebody great and new. And you go, oh, what a great idea. Um, mm. Or it's a, a, a new physical skill that you're learning. I mean, I personally you know, try and spend a lot of time. Um, well, swimming is my thing. I have a wonderful coach and I take pleasure in, you know, the minute details of trying to swim decently. I can swim. I'm quite slow, but I can swim for a very long time. And so it's good to think about my my technique and that's a different place to be. So I think I just purely take pleasure. It's just learning. It doesn't have to be transactional. It doesn't mean because I'm going to do something with it. And, and indeed, in, in Azima Zar's community, in the Exponential Do community, one of the things I've loved about that community of people is the generosity of spirit who people just like to come together and think together. And that's worthwhile time. So I that lifelong curiosity, and I'm just lucky, I, I, I just like finding out stuff. Um, so as you know, recently, Native American language structures. Uh, I got put onto by somebody have just opened up realms of thinking about who we are, what we are and why we are and uh, how lucky am I and how privileged am I? I mean, I'm very aware of the privilege that I have to have the time and the space to be able to do those things. Mm. Um, my mum, who uh, was very young when I was born, she was only 20, still works full time. And every, every Sunday morning I, uh, I, and uh, I go and you know take goodies and <laughs> sort of uh, from a local bakery, and we sit and we talk. And you know we're talking philosophy and ideas and thought and art. And you know we can sit there and we do it every Sunday, and we can do it for you know three or four hours. And so I kind of you know I've I've been doing this a long time, and I'm very aware of the privilege of that. I really am. But yeah. just stay curious, and it really matters. I had an interview of Walter Isaacson, who's a famous journalist, editor, and biographer to many well-known historical That's figures. He was, he was talking about curiosity, and he was mentioning you know, Leonardo da Vinci. And actually, he drew the same comparison between da Vinci and Benjamin Franklin, both of whom were fascinated by the ripples of water. And it seemed like such a simple idea. Curiosity can be about complex subjects, but actually, sometimes it can be about the most simple ideas. Michelangelo and Leonardo both studied why is the sky blue? You know, these sort of simple questions, which they seem childlike almost. Take da Vinci, you know, he was a, he was a painter whose interest in making sure the paintings looked as realistic as possible meant that he became more and more interested in the human body to the extent that he became fascinated by parts of the human body that he would never paint. It was just his curiosity that, that drove him. So I, I, I love that idea. I think the idea of being curious and following your interests and your passions is, is, is key, really. And that's a, the interesting thing about education, isn't it, with kids, that you know, particularly when they're young, you have no issue engaging kids with learning. But sometimes when you're forcing subjects upon them, which they're perhaps not curious about, 
it's more difficult to to engage them in later years, which does make you think about whether we've got the education system right. But that's probably a conversation for another day. Well, there are so many lovely things there, Ollie. I mean, the, the first is ripples of water. Well, that's beautiful. And I've just noted that down. That sort of maybe sparks a poem. Um, and again, just in sort of curiosity, I was sent... Uh, by a friend uh, just just this uh, just this weekend, a short YouTube video about the color blue, and about a suggestion suggestion, and I, I'm not going to do it justice, but a suggestion that if you look, for example, at Homer in the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's no mention of the color blue. That right. there's yeah. a suggestion yeah. that what humans see is black, white, red, yellow, and then green, and blue comes later because mm. we don't interact with blue as often in our sort of phenomenological days. Now, I, I, I can't make any claims about that validity of that thing, but just how wonderful that's, yeah. sort of, that's both a ripple, <laughs> a ripple of learning. And just quickly to your point about children, if I had one goal for any educational system for school children, it would be a qualitative one, which is that every single child leaves with their curiosity intact. Uh, as opposed to driven out of them, and yeah. as you say, with young children, how many? Unless you know, there are significant challenges and difficulties. How many incurious small children have you ever known? You know that yeah. that wonderful exploration. So, how is it that you know, sixteen years later, we we somehow manage to send out so many children into the world with that simple joy? And I use the word that joy. It's one of the it's one of the things that you you can do. And again, I'm aware of the privilege. I'm aware if you're in a position of economic scarcity uh, and, you know, where life is a great deal harder. If, you know, if you're living on a dollar a day or two dollars a day, some of this conversation about stay curious might feel a little redundant. Um, but even even there, you know, there's there's story and richness and exploration, which which communities do. But I'm again, I'm just always very aware of, of that of that privileged position that I come from but that curiosity that life-giving life-sustaining curiosity that's yeah that's a joy yeah Uh, you mentioned um Azimazar's exponential view community it seems that you've got a particular skill for cultivating relationships so we've done a little bit of work together over the past couple of months and you've brought some really interesting and diverse people around the table I think some of whom you've met through that community how do you cultivate those types of relationships? Is that something very conscious in your mind to continue building connections to grow your network? Or is that something that comes very naturally to you? That's a good question. I suppose that what I try and do, and I suppose it is, I don't know whether it's conscious or unconscious. It's just kind of the way I, I try and enter relationships in a non-transactional way. So I, I try not to sort of determine, you know, we've all had the experience at a party or at a meeting where you meet somebody, you get introduced and they make a really quick decision. Um, am I going to be interested in you or not? Their eyes are already, they've already slid over your shoulder seeking somebody else to go and talk to in the yeah. room <laughs> because they've decided quickly, oh, you're not somebody who can do anything. Politicians have a particular habit of doing this, I've felt, <laughs> over the years. And, and that people who sort of, you know, decide, no, you're... you're and I just... So those... I, I just like meeting... And anybody who just enjoys ideas... Um, and I suppose, again, as I've got older, it's a big theme for me at the moment, um, uh, having turned 60, become a grandfather recently... Um, 
I I also try, and this is a conscious thing, if I feel that people are having a hard time or they, they're just a bit of a space to be and talk, then I will always try and provide that space if I can. Um, yeah. uh, so, so I do, and I've been thinking a lot about this, I and mean, it, it's such an interesting thing about about back to compassion, really, not from an Olympian, hey, you know, I'm kind of all Zen and sorted. In a way, the as T.S. Eliot said, you know, you, you, it's meant to be that as you get older, you kind of get wiser. But I, it kind of, you feel more, you maybe you feel more think, things more keenly. You know, the, the the sand in the bottom of the hourglass is a bit fuller <laughs> than the sand of the top in the top of the hourglass. And there's a there's a there's a feeling that you know when you watch an hourglass that it's speeding up as the as as the top bit en- empties and so there is this sense of people to meet people, people more for me people to meet than places to go yeah. um and that it the sheer enjoyment of talking with being with people of different ages different backgrounds um who and, and so yes i just i like people <laughs> i yeah. like people i know where i know we can be awful but i like people and i like spending <laughs> time i know you're also fascinated by technology and the opportunities they present, and also you're very, I know, conscious about some of the risks. Which of those opportunities are you most excited about? On the technology side, yeah. goodness, I mean, there are, there are, um, there are so many. I mean, I, I, I think that where to start? I mean, I maybe start with a caveat, which is I'm not sort of a, I'm not a sort of techno utopian uh, in a believer that tech will see us out of all of these problems. But clearly we have some absolutely profound developments in terms of energy. I mean, if we do get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner energy, if we, you know, battery technologies, biotechnology, all of the ways in which we start to be able to think about longer term health, preventative preventative medicine, preventative care. Um, I have a feeling we are a very cuspish generation of sapiens that I think we're in a really interesting space where probably sometimes our knowledge that something is going to go on is going to outrun our capacity to fix it. And I think that's going to create some very interesting psychological societal challenges. Um, I think we'll probably go on to talk more about AI, but clearly that emergent relationship we have with these systems is very profound. So I think I see a blurring of boundaries all around us in terms of what we consider to be possible. But I think the one caveat would be, <laughs> I'm a minnow and he's you know the Goliath of this space, but you know, Yuval Harari's Homo Deus, which is, we're not gods and any that's that's you know anybody who's had done any of their greek tragedy <laughs> will know that hu- you know that hubris which uh, i i just worry about some of that that the techno optimism which is a little bit blind to human behavior so you, you that Emmanuel Kant quote the out of the crooked timber of humanity no true thing was ever made which is just be aware endlessly of the capacity for our um, constructive and destructive behaviors and the the deep ethical moral governance work we need to do around managing being trying to be in that choppy space yeah and in terms of AI so where does your interest in that lie? I know you're deeply interested. When did that start? How do you approach a subject like that and engaging 
people and businesses in conversations about it? Well, I suppose my my thinking about AI began in one of those you know genuinely epiphanic moments where I actually read David Kelly's book, which I've got on my shelf. I've just glanced across to it, uh, The Inevitable. Um, and he wrote right wrote a lot about AI. And I was actually on a plane on the way down to Australia to do a talk about risk, governance and risk in organizations. And I completely kind of excitedly changed my talk and gave my first ever talk about <laughs> AI. And um, I remember the challenge to it. It was very interesting, actually. I, I remember because it was right at the beginning of the journey and I hadn't really uh, the intellectual journey as opposed to the plane journey. And I remember wanting to talk about it and kind of feeling this beginning fizzing excitement because I come from a background of thinking deeply about the nature of human judgment and decision making, particularly in complex environments. So here you are, here are these people starting to talk about AI doing all these things, making decisions, taking decisions, taking decisions better than we do. And I was thinking, ooh, we we at BIOS, we've got something to say about this. But then I remember we kind of did the classic breakout into groups and did the people who wanted to talk about AI join. And I was on a table and quite a lot of people wanted to join. And I remember somebody saying, I'm only going to be interested in AI where it tells me it wants to go fishing for the day. And I remember being quite cross at the time and thinking, oh, you, you don't. But actually, it was it was brilliant. It was a brilliant insight. Uh, and I think he was being, I think still back, he was being very dismissive. But actually, that is a brilliant question. And in fact, would be emblematic of a lot of the way I think about and inquire into the nature of AI. But I really can. I can say it was a plane journey down to Australia, Kevin Kelly's book a background of thinking about judgment and decision-making, complexity, long timescale horizons for decision and judgment, and some of the claims that I could see being made around the nature of AI, what it is, how it is manifest in the world. That's what got me started. Sure. And clearly the applications for AI are vast. But again, I'm interested from a practical point of view, the impact that the ordinary person on the street, if you like, would experience, what, what's most exciting there? Because of course, we are benefiting from AI already in products, and many times we're not even aware that they're in use. What's next? And again, I know this is an incredibly broad question, but let's just focus on maybe on a couple of examples of where you see it making a a real impact in ways which we couldn't have imagined previously. Well, so then with the first thing, again, very obvious and very commonplace to observe. So, you know, no brownie points here for this at all, but yeah, as exactly as you say, AI is around us everywhere. There's kind of not an off switch. It's not a, it's not a sort of put it back in its box, like in a way, GM, uh, genetically modified foods, there was in a way there was a pushback in the room. It's too distributed for that. So you're quite, it's, 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 it's in so many things where people wouldn't even expect it to be operating. So you're quite right. It, it is just part of fabric. And I know there would be people who would be cross with me for saying that, that would be, they would be seeing that as a kind of techno determinism and going, well, hang on. No, are you sure? Are you right? It's inevitable. There would be people who would <laughs> didn't like Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable, because that smacks of a kind of Western techno deterministic stance. So let's, let's park that for a second and choose one example. So I'll choose AlphaFold. The now I'm on very thin ice here, but but AlphaFold, DeepMind's understanding of protein folding, and the and what the the, the sheer 
amazing step forward that relates to starting to understand some absolutely fundamental things about the way in which the body operates, the potential, the glimmers for new kinds of medicine and discovery and, and so on. So I think there is going to be, if we distribute the benefits and manage the harms in things like health, uh, enormous benefit, enormous benefit for us. And clearly, one of the promises would be their capacity for AI to see pattern and relationality, and be able to show it to us in ways that we haven't seen. I think one of the things, one of the big possibilities, most exciting areas, is for AI to show us pattern in places and relationality in ways that we we maybe haven't seen before. And I think this goes to the heart of, of something I, I mentioned just a little while ago about Native American language structures. So I'm going to make an interesting link. <laughs> well, I hope it's an interesting link. One of the things that from my, and I can't even, you know, dignify what I've been doing there with scratching the surface. I mean, I, I, I you know, go with genuine and not sort of faux humility into this space. But one of my my beginning understandings is if you take a language like Blackfoot, they have an astonishing verbal richness of imagining relations in time and space, relational possibility in time and space, a much wider, actually much more humble understanding of what it means to subsist as a human being in an incredibly rich web of relationships. So here would be my, the bit that I suppose would interest me where I would feel some things I could bring, because I'm not, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a finance person, is can AI start to reshow us, help us to see some of those beauties of connection that actually large numbers of indigenous people around the world have never lost sight of, and it's there in their languages. Could AI start to help us to see how beautiful the web of relationships in which we subsist actually are in practical ways, mm. which allow us politicians, uh, democracies, to change the context in which we deal with um, each other. We deal with climate change crises. We deal with extinctions. We deal with animals. We deal with the plant. I That's the bit that really thrills me personally, is that I think AI can help us to rediscover in the West particularly, relationality and relationship in time and space that uh, 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 much of the current discourse of AI, I have to say, I don't think really encourages, but this is the bit that interests me. Sure. Uh, and just moving the conversation to work and the fu- future of work, and of course, relationships are critical in so much of life, but you know, particularly when you think about the past 18 months and how this has precipitated changes in the way that we work and the way that we connect with people. And I'm talking physically in terms of where we're located, you know, the way we connect with people day to day has had to change. We're in many cases doing that via a screen rather than face to face. And I frankly, that is a trend which will continue, you know, it, to use your phrase earlier, that's out of the box and we, we can't turn that around. Are you optimistic about the fact that as things become more decentralized, you know, whether it be in location or organizationally, that that will create a work environment and a work culture to be excited about? I'm going to make a couple of distinctions here. 
Um, and I'm going to, um, Hannah Arendt, the great philosopher, made a really interesting distinction between labor and work and what she called action. Labor is the stuff that you need to do to kind of feed yourself, keep the roof over your head, just keep things going. Work would be, you know, maybe the making the table, the creating an object, creating an artifact that maybe didn't have, obviously tables do have utility, but you didn't, it was, you were, you would, you were creating some, something else. And this is her, and then action would be ideas and thoughts and all these other things, which ways in which we manifest ourselves in the world. Now, I know that there are groups of people who think that it'll be great when, and quite rightly, when we're no longer wage slaves, that we've kind of got this 1960s, you know, all looked over by machines of loving grace view of the world, that we will be let off the hook of all of this meaningless work. So you've got the books which get quoted all of it about bullshit jobs and so on. I'm a lot more sceptical about, you know, abandoning the notion of work for meaning making in our lives. I really am. I mean, I think that that the idea that that we 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 just you know lead these 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 ledgered lives or there's a sort of a I, I think it, I I don't know how it works because I'm not sure that you know in three hundred thousand years of sapiens that's ever been the case. Of course, you know we know that foraging communities have relatively large periods of leisure and things once the foraging had done what it needed to do. But that sense of meaning making that comes with work, and I I often quote. Studs Terkel, who the journalist, um, who did these a book called again, it's one of those books I gesture again. I have it to my to my right here on the shelf where I keep the books that I I quite often quote from. Studs Terkel wrote a book called Working, which was a series of interviews with people from lots of jobs, which a lot of people would consider menial. We're not interested in them, but you listen to the ways in which people found meaning in them, and they made meaning. They shaped days. How even if they were difficult, sometimes they shaped days. Now, I'm not trying to romanticize really tough, brutal, hard physical labor, but listen to some of the people describing that, and it, it was meaning making for them. So I I think that the the, the 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 issues around what kinds of work get displaced by automation of various finds. Physically, clearly, work has been our physical arm levers, our legs, our bodies have been supplemented for thousands of years in different ways by tools and technology. And what we have, we, you know, originally with printing or alphabets, you could argue, are ways of supplementing our cognitive abilities. So those inroads are going to be made. But I would guess, I suppose, in this space, I'm I'm a little bit more skeptical about not having the need to work. I think it yeah. is one of those fundamental meaning making day shaping elements of who we are um, and what that means in what kinds of work, uh, how we support citizens to, if you like, if I had one, again, one goal here, citizen goal, it would be how do you help more people to come to the fullness of their capability? How do you create the conditions in which more people are able to do and extend the view of work? It, you know, it can be voluntary work. It can be community work. It can be all sorts of ways in which we we we, we come together as humans and we, we do things together. So I'm not suggesting it necessarily work only has to be defined through, defined through that thing you do to get the paycheck. But I do, I'm not, of the opinion that it will all be fabulous when nobody has to work anymore. I was reminded when you were talking there of an article I read in Harvard Business Review, which was talking about job crafting. So job crafting is the idea that 
you can use your unique characteristics and skills to shape the way that you do your job and also reframe how you perceive your job and the purpose which it gives you. And I think this is really important. I mean, we're talking about, you know, having purpose in your work feeds into your life. And there was a really interesting anecdote about a, a lady who was a, a housekeeper or a cleaner in a university hospital. And she completely reframed the job that she was doing. And rather than focusing on cleaning responsibilities, she reframed it as playing a really important role in the house of hope. So she talked about herself as a healer because she was playing a really important role in the environment in which patients were recovering from their illnesses. And she took great pride in making sure that the space within which they were recuperating was as positive as possible. And she also took the time to speak to people and engage with people. So for her, it wasn't a cleaning job. She was a very important part of the whole machine of the university hospital in which people were recovering from illness. I like that phrase that you don't have to do what you love, but you can love what you do. I think that's a beautiful. I, I mean, I think that that example of, of the clinic, that's really moving and very, very beautiful. And I think also what one would like to feel is that the hospital authorities honoured and respected that too. Uh, and indeed, this is a lot of the, 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 the bios thinking about work that is done that needs to be done endlessly. We call it the tending work, the unglamorous work that, that, that people do to keep things ticking over. And indeed, I think in the recent pandemic, we've all had a bit of a glimpse of, you know, that kind of work, which is the work that kind of we we ignore or we disrespect or we certainly don't respect was suddenly that was the work that was keeping everybody going. And I think there is a. Uh, I think that that respect for that absolute frontline work that, you know, deciding to, you know, do the best job in terms of, you know, you, you possibly can and reframe it is very beautiful. And it, I, I, I think that um, I was just looking for a, a, a little bit from the Studs Terkel, which might build on that. And this is, this is, he, he quotes, from a, a, an interview with a steel worker called Mike Lefebvre in a chapter called Who Built the Pyramids? And it'll only take a second. And, he, and the, the steel worker goes, it's not just the work. Somebody built the pyramids. Somebody's going to build something. Pyramids, empire state building. These things don't just happen. There's hard work behind it. I would like to see a building, say the empire state. I would like to see on one side of it a foot-wide strip from top to bottom with the name of every bricklayer, the name of every electrician, with all the names. So when a guy walked by, he could take his son and say, see, that's me over there on the 45th floor. I put the steel beam in. Picasso can point to a painting. What can I point to? A writer can point to a book. Everybody should have something to point to, which I think is a sort of rather lovely building on your yeah. the story about the cleaner. Um, and, of course, that's not the accent. <laughs> <laughs> that Mark yeah, told yeah. that story in my uh, my uh, my RP English accent, but uh, it's it's a very it's 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 um and again it actually goes on to say it's not just recognition it's not it's the not recognition by other people to say a woman is just a housewife is degrading right okay yeah just a housewife it's also degrading to say just a labourer 
And I think yeah. that this respect for work and for meaning making. I remember being at a meeting a few years ago where some very wealthy people were kind of going, oh, it'll be great. You know, these menial tasks, secretaries and things, they'll be replaced by automatic. And I was thinking, how just how awful that is to listen to somebody who's probably worth tens, if not hundreds of millions, kind of going, ah, that worked. But, you know, a lot of the PAs I've known over the years, they love their work. They do a great mm. job. They, they, you know, they, they, they take a great deal of pride in it. The idea just to go, oh, well, that was all menial and meaningless. We may need to move on. You may need to honour and alter. But he has a big, that's a big bias phrase, honour and alter. Don't just... Because things change. Oh, well, you spent your life as a secretary or PA. That was meaningless. That was menial task. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you couldn't have found meaning in, in you know, organizing complex schedules uh, and knowing, you know, what, what was what was appropriate, who got through quickly, who didn't get through quickly, thinking ahead on behalf of... Um, your boss so you know somebody is is you know a guy is looking thoughtfully after her boss his boss or vice versa the idea that you couldn't find meaning in that i think is just so disrespectful and it by the way it tends to come from wealthy well-heeled people who kind of go no 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 that kind of work doesn't mean anything yeah and there's and also think there's trying to build that intrinsic motivation the pride as well is important there's a really interesting story which when you talked about signing the bricks it made me think about it there's steve jobs insisted when they built i think it was the original imac that the developers the engineers who worked on the project all signed their names inside the machines even though it would never be seen because it was a point of pride that they'd taken so much care around the design and the construction of the machine and no one would have ever seen that. But that was the intrinsic side. You know, it's the taking great pride for yourself in the work that you do. And it, so there's the external and the internal aspect of this, I think, which is important to remember. And in any complex adaptive system, which is what, you know, organizations, obviously societies, planets are, but let's talk about an organization. The thing is that work of all different kinds of complexity needs to be done. You you absolutely, you know, you need the people who are cleaning the hospital properly because if you don't, people die. And you also, you need your superstar surgeon. If you're going to be operated on by somebody, then you would rather that, you know, you were being operated on by her than by somebody else because she's got a thoracic capacity as a heart surgeon to be brilliant. But the also, also the hospital needs very often the much derided administrator who is mm. doing this unbelievably difficult bed juggling work. Uh, and, you know, you need the nurse who's a really experienced nurse who's been on the wards a long time, who just has that sense of this isn't right. Something feels wrong. I, you know, need to fetch a doctor or whatever, you know, your, your experience or no, I can fix this myself. All of those contributions in complex adaptive systems, they all need to be honored and respected. And if you if they're not all happening, the system falls apart. Because those different levels of complexity uh, exist in all organizations. And the real skill in an organization is to try and match where people are in flow with that kind of work and where they're going to make their maximal contribution. Yeah. So we haven't got very much time left. Um, I, I feel like we've probably got another podcast in us, but <laughs> let's uh, spend a couple of minutes uh, to talk about Douglas Adams. So... 
actually you, you pointed out to me i'm going to steal your your fact which today is the 42nd anniversary of the publication of hitchhiker's guide is that right yeah the book. yeah so I, I stole that off you sorry robin that's <laughs> all right <laughs> No, I was off mic. You never steal sharing. other people's anecdotes. <laughs> but there we go. It's done now. <laughs> so t- tell me about your relationship with him. And perhaps, you know, just again, in the, in the short amount of time we, we have, maybe just something that you've you learned about technology and uh, how that relates to humans through your relationship with him. Well, I was just really lucky to meet Douglas when I was a television producer um i won't go into the whole story of how i met but we met we met at his house we talked about bach we talked about herman hesse's glass bead game and uh, we established a connection we went out for sushi very quickly afterwards and uh, we became close friends uh and um i spoke to him the night before he died um and we set up a company together and i feel to this day uh, immensely privileged to have known somebody who was touched with genius uh, he was a lovely man, big, um, warm, friendly. Um, uh, you know, he liked his red wine and his champagne, and he was a great conversationalist. And you'll be unsurprised to hear that I could talk for England. So, you know, we we we, uh, we enjoyed many, many, many long conversations. What did I learn? So many things. But in the time available, I'm going to choose one. And I think that is Douglas's endless fascination with perspective. This endless fascination with asking, well, you think you see it this way, but what if you saw it this way? What if there was a super intelligent shade of blue? <laughs> blue, blue. That, that is his entire shtick around 42 on this 42nd anniversary. You know, what's the question you asked? You got an answer. Well, well but life, the universe and everything isn't a question. Um, so w- what questions do you ask? His thinking about rhinoceroses in Last Chance to See, which was the book he w- often said he was most proud of. This wonderful description and insight that with their extraordinarily sophisticated sense of smell, in a way they are seeing in time as they take the way in which smells are degrading around them at different stages and have got a, a 3D smellscape, which also has a time component in compared. I mean, just if one just sat with that one thought about perspective. So I would take away amongst many, many, many things we could discuss, Douglas's fascination with perspective. So he would very much be one who goes the world that you and I inhabit right now, phenomenologically, the world you and I are sitting in in our space. It's not that it's not real. It's just that it is a reality. It comes and is seen and experienced from a perspective. And Douglas was fascinated about trying to twist things. And Douglas's genius would be, let's take something like Babelfish. He grew up wondering why aliens always spoke English. So when he came to write his books, he wanted a plot device for sorting that problem out. But being Douglas, he didn't just say, oh, it's some universal translator you're going to put in your ear. He made it a fish. He made it a Babel fish. Now, that that's Douglas's genius. So many other people could have thought, oh, everybody who speaks English in space, I need to fix that problem. I know we'll just give them some kind of universal. But Douglas made it a fish. That's why the man was a genius. <laughs> brilliant Robbie thanks so much for your time today covered a lot of ground it's really really interesting as always as I said I'm sure we've got another podcast in us so I'm sure we'll uh, see you here again soon thank you very much Ollie a pleasure as always and that was my conversation with Robbie Stamp 
I enjoyed that. I you did as well. We uh, discussed a lot of different areas, but I think we've got much more in us as well. So you might be seeing Robbie back here again sometime soon. Thanks again for listening. If you haven't yet subscribed, please make sure you do so. And as ever, please check out the newsletter, Future Work Life, where I'll be writing some more about this interview in this week's newsletter. We've got another great guest lined up for next week, so I'll hopefully see you here again soon.